Hi, I'm Matt Sorensen, CMO at Clearbit. And I'm Alex McCaw, CEO of Clearbit. And you're listening to the Manager's Handbook Podcast. Here at Clearbit, we've been writing a book on management as part of our internal training program with a goal of developing world-class managers. The handbook brings together what's worked for us over the past five years and everything we've learned from our failures. Each month, we'll be releasing a new episode of the pod along with a written chapter of the handbook. You can find this all at themanagershandbook.com. Today, we're going to be tackling the topic of hiring. And I'm joined by Alex McCarr, CEO. And Alex, you've said that hiring is the most important job of every manager at Clearbit. Why is that? Well, there's something you need to understand about management. And that is management, most of management is done up front in hiring the right people. If you hire the right people, they will effectively manage themselves. Now, of course, you're going to have to do some management as well on top of that. But you're going to make your job a hell of a lot easier by hiring the right people. And it's honestly the most important process in the company. Yeah, the way I've heard it described before is management is about hiring and then coaching. And it's easier to coach really good people or really good players. That's a great way of putting it. So what are the biggest challenges with hiring for startups and that we might have faced here at Clearbit? Well, let's talk first about how we hired you five years ago, because things have changed a lot since then. So we were, you know, a couple of people and we didn't have any process at all. Do you remember what your interview was like? Yeah, it was a drunken dinner, I believe. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I think that's how you, you do things in the early days. You know, it's, it's very ad hoc. But as you scale, you've got to add a bit more process to things. I think what we've seen is as you get to 100 plus plus people, the process around hiring becomes really important so that we can teach everyone how to hire really well and maintain a bar. I think the way we've described this before is like what we had previously was unscientific hiring. And what is that? Like, What are the consequences of that? Yeah, I like to call it um, voodoo hiring. And it is essentially how most organizations hire, which is without using consistency. So different candidates are evaluated in different ways. They get asked different questions. It's not structured. And if you don't have consistency, then it's very difficult to compare candidates and evaluate properly. Especially as we start having larger teams and there's panel interviews. And if that panel is interviewing five people, but everyone on that panel is asking different questions each time, like it's not a useful interview process. Right. And the questions that people ask, if you know they don't prepare, generally are not great. Everyone thinks, them, everyone wants to hire themselves. And so they will ask questions that they would get a 10 out of 10 for because they think they're, you know, the best employee. I mean, even you and I have fallen into that when we were writing our cultural guidelines. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, looking for experiences that we were likely to have versus other people might be. There's some bias there. And so I think the key thing is to really understand upfront before you even publish the job posting exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, so what are what are the like mechanisms to do that? So there's job descriptions, I guess roles and responsibilities. What do you recommend people use? So if you want to hire someone, the first thing you start with is a role proposal. Because essentially what you're asking for is a one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars at the minimum cash investment. And you need a proposal for that. Now, the same as you'd need a proposal for if you wanted to buy a hundred thousand dollar product. To dive in on that, what exactly is in that proposal? Well, the first thing is a justification for the hire. So the hiring should be your last resort. It's often a failure in process or scaling that you need to add more people. More people is not something that you should aim for. And so you really need to indicate that you've thought about alternatives and that there really is no alternative to hiring this person. Gotcha. That's an interesting frame. So thinking of hiring as a failure of your team to scale to what you need, not necessarily a failure of the people, but we need we want to be able to do more. The only way we can do that is hiring. Yeah. And I like to think of it as opening, having to open that role proposal is the failure. 
actually hiring someone, I was trying to treat as a success. <laughs> That's a good differentiator. <laughs> and uh, so we, we ask people to provide a few things as part of these proposals. So the first thing is an external job-facing description. And this should be not dull. Most people make this mistake where they just look at other companies' job proposals and uh, job descriptions, and they're relatively dull, and they just copy that. So we want to try and make it really exciting, talk specifically about what it is like to be on that specific team, reporting to that specific manager, what you're looking for. Because it's really a very personal thing. And that's why we ask all managers to do their own hiring, because they're the ones that know exactly what they're looking for. So I'm a manager here at Clearbit. I need to hire a new product marketing manager. I'm filling out my role proposal. I see I need to build a scorecard. Uh, tell me what's in that scorecard. So we base our scorecards off a book called The Who. Well, I think it's just called Who. Just Who. Just Who. And, and we, in fact, base most of our hiring process off this book. And I highly, highly recommend it. But The Who details what should be in a uh, scorecard. And it starts with a mission. So this is a short statement of one to five sentences that describe why a role exists. And then the outcomes. So this is three to eight specific objective outcomes that a person must achieve to get a performance. And this would be objectives uh, or more specifically like KPIs or metrics that this person would impact. Exactly. So the, the key thing is to keep it quantifiable. So it should be... For example, improve MPS from this number to this number. Retention rate, ACV, something. Right. And then competencies. So identify as many role-based competencies as you think appropriate. And so these could be things like efficiency, honesty, high standards, uh, high customer service mentality, that kind of thing. Sure. Or even technical skills like SQL knowledge, writing, familiarity with a specific coding framework. Right. And the key thing is to have all these listed out and then you can score each candidate by all of these things. And you can do it consistently. You actually can base the rest of the interview and the questions that you ask the candidate off the competencies and outcomes. And you can tie everyone's questions from the panel interview or any other type of interview back to that scorecard. And that's actually where they're leaving their comments. And we are learning about these candidates. Right. And then the last step is to just share this scorecard with your team. Make sure you get buy-in, make any changes. And one, one thing that I've liked to add to this portion, and once you have this job description, you have this scorecard, uh, it actually segues nicely into the next part of our conversation here, but is show it to external people. Show it to the people that you think are the best in the world at that job. Yes, yeah, no, that's a great segue into sourcing. So sourcing is where it's usually the hardest process for most people and for most companies. And I think the reason for that is it's, pretty mundane and it requires constant constant attention you constantly be got to be sourcing i mean it's kind of like being an sdr for some percentage of your life right yeah that's one way of putting it <laughs> not that being an sdr is a bad position but most people don't love doing it for a long time and and the thing is you got to have that you got to have that good network and you got to be maintaining that i know that you do some specific things to help with your network yeah, I mean, one very specific tactic that I kind of alluded to was when once that job description is done, reaching out to people in my network or extended network that look like the person I would like to hire and ask for their feedback on this job description. Uh, to be like, I haven't hired for this position before. I'm learning about it. I'd love your feedback on what we're looking for. We get great feedback almost every time. And the people that do spend time tend to write like their perfect job description. And, you know, it's definitely not every time, definitely not, you know, half the time, but you can get some really good candidates that way. Yeah, it's, it's a good trick. <laughs> you know, you know, we ask all of our managers to do their own sourcing. And, and why is that? Well, because they have the best idea of what candidates they are looking for. And we get much better candidates if they're sourced through the managers. And we expect this to be a big part of their job. It's, it's something you have to do as a manager at Clearbit. But what we emphasize to managers is if they get good at the skill, it's a superpower. Because they can take that anywhere. They can start companies. They, they, their team is going to be 
a hell of a lot more successful because of the talent on it, and that's going to help their career. And we also point to, for example, companies like Benchmark, one of the most famed venture capitalists in the world, and they were started by a bunch of recruiters. Kind of incredible. So let's let's dive into sourcing a little bit more. We require all managers to be their primary sourcers. There's a few different tactics. What are some of our most successful tactics? So we discovered something three, three and a half years in, which I wish we discovered before. And that is a re- really simple idea called a source-a-thon. And so the manager will set up a meeting and invite people who have relevant networks to the person they're looking for. And everyone sits down for an hour and manually sources. They manually sift through their LinkedIn. We have a bunch of tools that we use for searching through our networks and they refer candidates. And this is the number one way that we've scaled. And just to be very specific, half an hour of sourcing, 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 looking through Covey, Teamable, LinkedIn, all of the different tools that we have access to creating a list, the hiring manager then can look down through that list, be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, I'm interested, I'm not. And then the second half of that sourcing session is everyone in real time reaching out to those people. It's just such a great forcing function for creating volume. It works so well. And it, sometimes we'll have emergency sourcing sessions where we have a candidate that we've been looking for for a long time. And we'll, t- we'll take the entire leadership team and sit down for an hour and we get so many candidates through that. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, you know, Clearbit's network is big enough because it's just, you know, the network of all the employees that we can hire out of that. Now, it's it's like our number one source. So outside of leveraging employees and these sourcing sessions, what are some other ways to generate uh, top of funnel candidates? Well, I think you alluded to it earlier speaking to industry experts and asking them often an industry expert is not going to be interested in the role just because of their seniority but they will know the up-and-comers yeah and what i find too industry experts but more specifically friends of the company people that believe in clearbit and believe in your company you ask them who do you think is awesome at this specific role and they're you know emotionally invested in, in you and the company and willing to help and customers are actually also a great source of candidates, but also referrals. Right. We've hired a few customers before. And then there's some engineer-specific stuff. And AngelList we, and A-List, we find a good for finding software engineers. I have a, a few things that I look for. Having a blog is the best signal that I've seen. If someone is writing about their craft, it's clear they really care about it. And do you feel like that's true across all roles or specifically engineering? I think it's specific to engineering. But I, I would say engineers tend to have blogs. If if someone in another role has a blog, that's a huge plus. Yeah, right? it's a great sign, typically. It's a great sign. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be a blog, just people that are sharing something and taking the time to build something outside. And it doesn't matter how out of date it is either. Sure. <laughs> another tactic that I do a lot less, but I've noticed that you are fantastic at, is outbound and very specific direct outbound. Yeah, so what I'll do is I will go through my network. I have a bunch of scripts that pull down all my Twitter followers, anyone I've emailed, and enrich them with clever data. And then I manually go through them. And I also go through GitHub repos. You know, I if someone is a strong open source contributor, then that's also a great sign. You know, I'll have a, a hit list of companies that I know have a really high hiring bar, and I will just go through all their GitHub repos and see who's committing to them. In the early days, I remember we would do it based on framework and language, and uh, that's lessened a little bit today. But Yeah, for sure. And then your ATS, your, your applicant tracking system. In this case, we use Lever. It's something that you, it's a tool that you really should be using. So you can, you can create candidates in there, you can snooze them, and you can come back to them. You, you should be really doubling down with these tools. I think that's been a huge learning for me is watching our recruiting team become more funnel focused. I think it's really, really essential to think of your recruiting funnel as a funnel and take kind of a growth marketing mindset to it versus how recruiting has been treated earlier in our in our life. All right, the interview. It's changed a lot since the early days of getting dinner with someone and having a few drinks to make sure that you wanted to hang out with them. What do, what do interviews look like at Clearbit today? 
Well, they're based off all the pre-work you did, off the role proposal and the scorecard. And the first thing you need to do is a screening interview. So you have a bunch of candidates who've expressed interest. You need to screen them. And the key part of the screening interview is that you want to weed out the weaker candidates really early in the process because it's pretty expensive to let them go through the whole hiring process. So how long is the screening process or how long are those calls? So they're 30-minute calls. And so what you do at the start of the call is you, you set the context. So you, you say, I'd like to spend the first 20 minutes of the call getting to know you, making some notes, and then I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Gotcha. And is that completely standardized, that first 20 minutes? Yeah. So we have a script for the whole thing. Uh, we first ask them, what are their career goals? What are you really good at professionally? Uh, what is your great, greatest accomplishment professionally? What are you not good at or not interested in? Um, and then we also asked them their last three bosses and how they'd rate their performance if we were to talk to them out of 10. And we also make sure we write those names down, we spell them correctly so that we can do those reference checks. And it's actually setting the context up front that we will be talking to those last three bosses. Right. And so say a screening call is going really, really well. You're 15 minutes in, you're like, yes, I want this person. What do you do then? Do you continue down this path? Do you have to get through the whole script? Well, I think at some point, your spidey senses will say, okay, this person is, is really good. And then you move into sell mode. I think that's always been the pushback on this type of interview is we're going to spend a whole half an hour grilling this person and that's going to be their first interaction with us. But really, you've look, you can learn pretty quickly if this person is someone that you want to try to sell. And the way this is set up to setting the context, it's not quite as aggressive. Right. So you just ask for an extra 15 minutes if possible, and then you start pitching. And so setting works best when you listen, when you base your sell off what the candidate is looking for next. And so often your pitch will change dependent on um, what they've said in the previous 20 minutes. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important learnings for me of the formalization of our interview process is finding out what people care about the most at the top. You know, what are their career goals? What do they want to do next? What don't they? Where do they want to be? What are their selling points for why they would join a company? Is it team? Is it compensation? Is it equity? And then focusing everything about that all the way through. Yeah. And it might be that what they want, we can't provide. Absolutely. It doesn't align. And if we know that up front, we can move so much faster. Right. And we don't waste time with the rest of the interview. But if it does align, then we can really customize that sell to the particular candidate. Yeah, this might be a hard question, but what percentage of phone screens would you expect to make it through? Golly, it really depends. Probably depends on the role as well. I mean, we I've recently just hired a COO and I looked at so many candidates. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people get stuck at this stage and, and get weeded out. And but that's kind of the point. I would say you want to actually be weeding out most people because the next five of these interviews or five steps of interviewing are incredibly time intensive. Yeah, and, and that's huge opportunity cost. So let's talk about the next one, which is a, a top grading interview. Top grading has kind of changed my life in terms of how I think about interviewing. How do we come up with top grading? Tell me a little bit about it. So the top grading interview is the next part of the process, and it's also over the phone, the same with the screening interview, just to save a bit of time. And... The key part of top grading is you are trying to understand the candidate's stories and patterns. And these stories and patterns are predictive of the candidate's future performance. Like past performance is indicative of future performance. And so what, what do you mean by stories here? So this is the stories the candidate tells themselves about their successes and failures. Mm -hmm. and, and it really gives you an insight into whether they're actually taking responsibility and being accurate about uh, their strengths and their weaknesses. And these interviews are pretty pretty heavy. They're pretty long, right? Yeah. So the key thing is you need to set the context again. And we have a script for that. And I'm going to paraphrase here, not read the whole thing. But essentially, you set the stage. You say, this is going to be an intense interview. We're trying to work through all of your employment history. I may interrupt you just to keep you on track, just to give you the best chance of, of getting this. And then for each job they've had for the last five years, you're going to ask some questions. And these questions are, 
What were you hired to do? What were your priorities? What were your low points during the job? Who is on that team? Who is your boss's name? How would your boss rate your performance? And then what are your reasons for leaving? And we should probably dive into those. Yeah, I mean, I think why were you hired and what were your priorities are really interesting, especially if you can tie them to like a number. I was hired to change this number. You're looking for quantitative reasons and quantitative successes. So, you know, A players talk about outcomes linked to expectations. They talk about concrete results. And B and C players, they talk about events and people, but not results. Another really helpful question is that what were your low points? That often pulls out. It starts with like something bad happened, and then you dig into why that happened and the people that were involved, and you start to see what the interpersonal dynamics might have been. So this question is a better spin on what are your weaknesses, because no, no one answers that properly. So what are your low points during that job? Will hopefully give you some idea of that. So you you mentioned talking to their past bosses or the their past managers. How does this interview play into that? Well, you want to know what their relationship was like with their previous bosses, how they would rate their performance. And then you can use all of that information when you're doing the reference checks. And even more specifically, when you're doing these reference checks, you now have, this is why this person was hired. This is what they changed. And you can compare that story with their previous manager. And the more the same that story is, the better. Right. So, and then the last thing is, what are your reasons for leaving? And... You know, good candidates, A players are promoted, recruited from each job and and leave for good reasons. BC candidates are fired from their job. And so I think it's important not to accept any vague answers here and keep on digging. Yeah, agreed. A vague reason for leaving is a, is a pretty big red flag. All right, so top grading is done. Now we're ready to interview these people in person, probably with a panel interview. We call those focus interviews. Tell me a little bit about those, how those are created. So these are all based off the scorecard. And at this point, we're actually bringing candidates on site. So it's starting to get really expensive. And we have a whole day dedicated to interviewing them. Or we do two half days dependent on on the candidate's needs. And the idea is to ask the same questions again and again to each different candidate so you can compare the answers. But the questions will be pretty specific to you know, the, the role and the scorecard. You know, if they're an engineer, you might have very specific questions about their SQL knowledge. You might do pair programming with them. You might ask them specific questions about their experience in scaling up the web service or that kind of thing. So the sales is, is, is different. But the key thing is, though, that these questions are standardized. And we ask every department at Clearbit to have the scorecard and the standardized questions as part of the focus interviews in the in their wiki and in the, the department wiki. Where do take-home projects come in here? Are they part of the focus interview? They are evaluated in the same way that you would evaluate a focus interview. So you want this, you want the same take-home project for everyone, and you want the same evaluation criteria to map to the scorecard. And those map that maps to the scorecard. And so the last type of interview here is values interview. And values interviews at Clearbit have changed over the years. At one time, it was kind of just a in-person check. Does this person feel good with our team? It's become a lot more systematized, and, and we have a lot more process there. Tell me about that journey for us. Yeah, like every journey in a startup, it starts out, you know, just a couple of people. And then over time, you get more process. And we've added more process to the values interview for the same reason that we have more standardization across all the rest of the other interviews. We, we you know, we're, we're looking for specific reasons rather than someone's like, gut. I guess the reason I ask is I think people find this challenging of how do we how do we standardize values and how do we actually interview for them? So at Clearbit, we have specific values that the company have picked many years ago. And we're looking for people that fit within these values. So an example of these values could be self-sufficiency, conviction, loving their craft. And we have uh, particular ways of testing for each of these values. And we have what we call a hiring rubric, which offers recommendations for testing some of these values. And so, for example, 
if you're testing for the value of craft, we have a list of questions that might give you an idea if they really care about that craft, you know. Do they have a blog? Have they published any works, written any books? Do they know any experts in the field? And do other people seek their advice? That kind of thing. It's really interesting to see what words people choose to describe their values and how those map to our stated company values. Last on interviewing is reference checking and references. Let's talk about those, both the candidate provided one, back channel, et cetera. So at this point, you might have some incredible candidates who you're really excited about. You might be tempted to skip the reference check, but that's never a good idea. So like everything else, our references are standardized. We have a script for all of them. And we're doing two types of reference checks. We're doing ones with direct references. So that's with people that the candidate's given us. And we ask for the last three bosses. And then indirect references. So this is with people that the candidate's worked with who the candidate not hasn't necessarily given us. So for direct references, I've typically found these to be pretty soft and the people a candidate provides are often going to be people that love them, right? And people that will say nice things. How do you navigate those? That's true. Although if it's the last three bosses, then they don't really have a choice. Sure. As to which can. Yeah, from the top grading. Yeah, but you can't always get the last three bosses because, especially if they're currently employed somewhere. Yeah, and even if they're large companies as well, it could be someone that was like a pseudo boss. Yeah. So it's not always possible, but you should attempt it at least. But I would just discount something from when a candidate is giving a specific person. You know, if that person's been given unprompted, it's generally unlikely that they're going to say something bad about the candidate. Otherwise, the candidate wouldn't have even given them in the first place. I do think even with candidates like that, though, there are things you can listen for and ways you can prompt to get interesting things. So I think a really important thing is always frame all of your questions in the past tense. So like, what could this candidate improve upon instead of saying it like, what could they improve on? It's like back then, what were, you know, what were the biggest areas of growth for the candidate? Yeah, the key being back then, it gives them kind of a bit of cover room so they can be a bit more honest. So let's go, let's dive into the script. So we ask, what context did you work with this person? What were their biggest strengths? What were their biggest areas for improvement back then? And then how would you rate their performance in, in that job on a scale of 0 to 10? We find that scale keeps it nice and quantifiable, even though it's not completely objective. And then this is also a point that you can dive into some of the things that might have been red flags earlier on in the interview process. Oh, interesting. Can you give me an example? Let's just say the candidate didn't deal well with authority and had a falling out with you know, one of their bosses or something like that. Oh, I see. So this would be the, the candidate mentioned to me that they struggled with X. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then there's the last question I like asking that actually can pull out some juicy details. Tell me about a time that you and the candidate disagreed. And how did you resolve that disagreement? All right, indirect references, the opposite of direct references. These can be also called back channels, things of that nature. I love to do these very early in the process. I know that's not true for everyone. But tell me, tell me how we kind of think about standardized back channel references. Well, you've got to find some people in common first. So uh, generally, you can ask in the hiring Slack channel and um, go and troll through LinkedIn, see if you've got any connection to the previous companies. And you have to do this very, very carefully. And it's, it's important not to do it at the, the candidate's current company uh, unless you know for absolutely sure that it's going to be fine. And often getting the candidate's permission is like a good way of doing that. I think that's actually what top grading opens up is those last three bosses, very specific people that they know we're going to reach out to and a much cleaner way of doing back channels without that risk. So now you have gone through all the steps, you've sourced candidates, you've interviewed them properly, and now the last step is closing. So we've gone through the five steps of interviewing, and I can't help but think after talking about this for the last 15, 20 minutes that it's very rigid. There's not a lot of room for kind of like human connection, at least seemingly. And I wonder about like candidate experience and like what happens if you really just needed to connect with someone as a human. 
Yeah. So the pro assist is there to help you and help standardize it, but that doesn't mean you can not do things in addition to the process, you know? So, you know, you are hiring another human being, so you can be <laughs> human for sure. And, and, you know, the closing process is particularly a place that you can demonstrate to the candidate that they're not just some other candidate, that you really want to work together. And, you know, you guys are going on this journey together and it's, it's going to be amazing. And, and it's going to change both of your lives. I think that's even something you can set the context for at the top. So post that first phone screen, give, letting them know there's a lot coming. There's a lot of process coming, but here's why it all exists. Here's our mutual goal that we're working towards and being pretty explicit about what success looks like. It is a lot of process, but interestingly, what we've, we've gotten incredible feedback from candidates that have gone through it in terms of really understanding what's happening, why it's happening, and feeling like they were partners with us on the journey. Right, right. And I think you're particularly good at this. What are some of the things that you do to get to know candidates? Yeah, I think for me, values often come up very early. I'm talking about team values, company values, personal. Um, career goals are like a huge part of the early conversation. What are you trying to do? And then everything kind of orients around that. And then as you alluded to on the closing side, that's where you really get to start showing some of this off. So it can be dinners, it can be orienting all of your closing conversations around the things that they're most excited about. I think you've taken people and their spouses out uh, for dinner before as well. The key thing is to really dig into what are the factors behind their decision and what do they care about? And often their uh, significant other is a big factor in that. And so you wanna include them in the conversation. I think the way I think about it is if someone's at home talking through their options, and their significant other or their partner really likes one of them or has an emotional connection with them. Oh, what about Clearbit? What about Clearbit? It's just like a little bit more reinforcement. Right. And what I'll do is I sometimes send champagne or flowers to their house. I'll ask any mutual connections to reach out and tell them to be totally honest about who I am and what it's like to work with me or be friends with me and to give them some more context. And I'll also ask the candidate if they want the investor context as well and get some of our investors to reach out for senior candidates. And that's something we make available to everyone, every hiring manager, anyone on the exec team, Alex, any of our investors, if you have a candidate that needs help, all of us are willing to do to help in. Yeah, because this is the stage of the process that you can do things that don't scale. Because this is probably the most high leverage time in during your day or at the company is in closing these candidates. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the other kind of selling closing techniques? I know one that you've gotten really good at is kind of selling the opportunity. Yeah, and I will just sit down with the candidate, often over dinner, and I'll really talk about what I'm trying to do with this company and what we're all trying to build. And try and also fit that into the candidate's narrative, you know. Uh, what What is it they want out of life? Where do they want to be next? I'll also talk about what do they want to do after this job and and talk about how we can set them up for that. That's been a huge part of it for me. A large part of my team is founders, engineers, former former CEOs or VPs of marketing, and they often have a very clear path of what they want to do next, uh, a very clear idea. And so building clear bit into the narrative of how their work here will help them become that next thing. Right. Right. And it could be leadership skills, management skills. It could be uh, even things like getting a green card. I uh, personally have a green card and I've been through that process. So I know a hell of a lot about it. And so I can really explain to candidates how much I know and how much we can help them. Absolutely. I think another thing that we do particularly well, and we've learned over the years here, but it's talking benefits and I think when I first hear talking benefits, I think about it just a bullet point list of, you know, 401k contribution and dogs allowed in the office. But what are what what would benefits actually mean? Well, obviously the biggest benefit is the people they're working with. So I do talk about that. How do you show that off? Like talking about that's one thing. Well, I just I will talk about the, the different people in the team. And hopefully they've met them through the interview process. If they haven't, I'll set up coffees with them. But that's a huge part of the cell and the end and, and of and their experience of working at Clearbit. So many of our candidates talk about meeting with the team members and then coming in and having like a full being there for full, full team lunch. 
we have the chefs in the office. Every we have family style lunch every day. Everyone gets together and talks, and we try to make sure every candidate's a part of that. Yeah, and it's important for us as well to see that they're going to enjoy that kind of thing because it's not for everyone. But you know, Clearbit, we we are really close. We we are a bunch of friends, and I think it's what makes this company so great. I love that Tony, our head chef, has the list of everyone that's interviewing, so he knows their names. So when they come in, he can greet them and talk to them. Like it's fantastic. I didn't even know that. That is so smart. And then we got more generic benefits, like you said, four hundred one k and health insurance. We have unlimited vacation. I think that's a big thing for a lot of people, or untracked vacation, I should say. I think it's important on the untracked, unlimited vacation to be clear that of what that means, right? I think a lot of companies say unlimited vacation, but the social expectation is that you never take vacation. I think you do a really good job, and maybe I do as well, of setting the example there. <laughs> yeah, we set a great example. <laughs> well, you know, I'm European. Oh, yeah. You know, I get a, I get a free pass. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're talking through, we're still closing. We have a couple scripts. Do you want to dive into those a little bit as like why those are important? Yeah, so when it comes to the details, like compensation, the the key thing is we don't want to negotiate with the candidate because we can't. We have a system. You know, to make everything more fair, we have a leveling system that has specific levels and very very specific attributes associated with those levels and then specific comp is of that. So we try and target 75th percentile on cash comp and that's based off the level so before we actually go into giving an offer what is our what does our pre-close look like because this, this has been a new concept to me that i've really really liked well the pre-close is really about just understanding the factors that are going to go into this decision you start out with saying assuming we extend an offer to you that makes sense financially do you see yourself joining clip it and if they say, yes, great, onwards. If they say no, then you've got to dig into those reasons. And you say, why not? And you learn why not. And if you can change the offer then, then you say, assuming these things are true right. and you got an offer today, would you see yourself joining Clearbit? Yeah, the key thing is not to give people an offer because I think that if you do that, they just expect to negotiate. And you also might not understand the specific reasons why the decision-making, the reasons behind their decision. And you might be able to fix those things before you make the actual offer. I think getting to the point where you don't know for sure someone's going to say yes, and then we send them a DocuSign offer just leaves like way too many variables up in the air. Right. And then with the offer. So I like to say, as with the marriage proposal, the key thing is not to make the offer until you're sure they're going to accept it. Exactly. And... What we'll do, we have a script, we'll explain the package again. We have, we'll explain our compensation system and how that works. And then we say, if we were to give you the following offer, and then you, you give, you detail the cash, the equity, the benefits, would you accept? They say yes, send them the DocuSign, and give them the offer. One thing I really, really like that we started doing is talking about the valuation of the company and what their equity might be worth. And there's some really like interesting ways of kind of framing that. I think most people, especially early stage employees, don't always think about equity in a holistic way. So this is something that irks me about a lot of other companies is there's this information asymmetry with the candidates around equity. And it's not, it's not dealt with properly. You really should be giving the candidate all the information they need and all the information about the equity. So you should be talking about total number of shares. You should be talking about 49A valuation. I've actually written a a blog post called An Engineer's Guide to Stock Option, but honestly, it's not specific to engineers. I just thought that would (laughs) get higher on Hacker News. Yeah, good Hacker News title. And that goes into a lot of detail as to the the American system. So how options and stock is taxed, what are the implications of pre-purchasing your shares, what are the implications of the foreign NA valuation going up. And so we actually ask our candidates to 
read that. We give them an equity calculator. And, and throughout this whole process, we are emphasizing that there is significant risk. This is not a public company. Like those options may not be worth anything. And you, you don't want to pull the wool over people's eyes. And I think the other cool thing that we decided early on was to have the extended option life instead of having the 90-day exercise period, which most companies have when someone leaves. We've decided to do something else. I view the 90-day exercise as stealing. I, I think it's, it's stealing, pure and simple. Like the candidate or that person has earned those options and you're just taking them away from them just because they can't afford to buy them. And, you know, it's not a company's fault that the system is set up like it is. It's actually incentivized because of the way that the U.S. tax system works, but the companies sure take advantage of it. So we will give people essentially unlimited time to buy their options. And so they're not trying to find cash within three months after leaving. All right, so we've gotten the verbal yes. We sent the offer letter. They've signed what happens next? So now you have to make sure the candidate doesn't have any buyer's remorse. And so you have to keep checking in with the candidate. And we also like to introduce them to the company. So once we have a little bio about the candidate, a photo, I or the, our head of HR will send an email to the candidate welcoming them to the company and CCing the entire company. And then the entire company jumps on and talks about how excited they are to work with this candidate. Yeah, and the slight evolution of that is we've actually started soliciting some information from the candidate. We get a picture of them, a couple lines about themselves, and that's the intro. People respond with funny gifts and you know welcome messages. It's really sweet. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got the onboarding. And I think this is a very important part of the process. I don't think you've actually hired someone until you've onboarded them properly. Yeah, and onboarding begins... Post immediately post close. It's not their first day in the office. Yeah, at Clearbit we have a lot of documentation, a lot of things have been written down over the years, and so we ask the candidate to, or I guess the close candidate at this point, to read all all of that. We also send the the candidate this book called The Fifteen Commitments of Conscious Leadership, and we ask them to read it before they join. I I really like that, and um, I also like sending an additional book or an additional gift at the same time to kind of welcome them in a personalized way. So what does a successful onboarding achieve? A few things. So the first thing is reassuring the high that they've made the right decision. Yeah, that buyer's remorse. Right, and we've messed this up before, and it is mortifying when a candidate leaves within the first three months. This has happened twice with us. And we always ask ourselves, what could we have done better? But a part of it is a good onboarding process. So you want to make sure they they really believe they've made the right decision. You want to introduce the hire to key stakeholders, give them the tools they need to do their job. I mean, you know, obviously they need a laptop. And you want to give the hire context around the history of the company and the product line and the culture. And we have a lot of documents that they can read about this. And then you want to set up the first 90 days and decide on key metrics and let them hit the ground running. For onboarding, we're a 30% distributed company, remote company, but we do ask everyone to come in to HQ here in SF for their onboarding if possible. Why is that so important? I just don't think we have found a way around that FaceTime with the key people. I think as humans, we are hardwired to want to be in the same room if we're going to know and trust someone. And that's especially important during the onboarding process. And then we have various other methods for trying to instilling that in our remote candidates, or remote hires. But during the onboarding process is a very delicate time. You want to make sure that you get it right. I think nothing beats that in human time. We're social creatures. We want to be with people that we like being around and have having that in person, especially if you're going to be remote, is so, so important. And like everything else, we have a system for all of this. So yeah, systems are freeing. And we use Asana. We set up a new project for every candidate that we've hired. And then 
we have tasks. And we have a template for this. The template depends on role. And the hire will go through all these tasks and check them off as they go. And then task might be read this document about the company's history or get coffee with so-and-so. Have your first one-on-one with your manager, all those things. And then the, the last part of the onboarding process is they've got to write the 30, 60, 90. And this is a document that lists what they're going to do over the next 90 days. And ideally, it should line up with your original scorecard for the role proposal. But you want the candidate to come up with them or the hire to come up with them themselves. You want buy-in. Yeah, as much as possible, the 306090 should be original work by your new hire. That 306090 plan uh, is built in the first week and is primarily based on their interviews with all of their stakeholders. So for a marketing position, that might be talking to other people on the marketing team, people on the sales team, product team that will be impacted by their work, finding out what's most important to the company, creating their draft of their 306090. Then they'll take that to their manager for feedback and then present it to the team. The key thing with this is to keep it quantifiable. So they should have specific targets to hit, very goal-orientated. And I think some of the teams that are best at this are actually our sales and CS team, which have very, very quantifiable goals during their ramp periods, et cetera. It can be harder for teams like ops or even for marketing. How do you, how do you recommend people overcome that? Well, there should be some quantifiable goals based off the scorecard. You know, what did you hire them to do? And they should be able to do some of that in the first 90 days. I also think knowledge and learning is a big part of that 30, 60, 90. So you have, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the numbers I'm going to impact. Here's what I'm going to know. And that can be very quantifiable and testable. And the other thing is you got to get them a quick win. And I know you're pretty good at this. Yeah, I'm a big believer by the end of week two, there should be some sort of shipped project that goes in our ship channel that we can all applaud and accolade. It doesn't have to be big, but everyone that you're hiring, especially, this is probably easier on my team than some, but we're hiring them to do very specific work. And so we can find a small chunked project that gives them access to context information that they need, a nice ramping project, and something that we can uh, celebrate very quickly. And that's it. They're onboarded. They're onboarded. It's that simple. So... Don't confuse onboarded with fully ramped. So it's going to take at least three to six months for most people to have full context and start functioning at full capacity. So Alex, I get the sense that hiring can be really draining for you as a bit of an introvert and having to talk to all these people, especially having to go through these kind of like surface level filter interviews. What are the parts of interviewing that and hiring that give you energy? The parts that give me energy are the parts afterwards, honestly. It's seeing someone really fly. Someone growing into a role, becoming the person they want to become, and really, really flying and doing incredible things. Honestly, the hiring process does not give me energy. Luckily, I only have to do it every two or three years, just because I'm only hiring for my leadership team. And, you know, a lot of CEOs do this a lot more and there's a lot more turnover on the leadership team. I don't like running things that way. I think it's part of the special culture that we build at Clearbit that we have had people on the leadership team who've been there five years and have grown with the company. And so the nice side effect of that is that I didn't have to do much hiring myself. (laughs) Yeah, I think I have somewhat similar feelings, especially around sourcing. I used to really dislike sourcing. What kind of the reframing that kind of helped me was... These are opportunities for me to test my ideas about what this team is that I'm building and we're building and test the like the way we talk about Clearbit, the way we talk about our individual teams with some of the best people in the world to, for these jobs, right? We're in this amazing position that we get to interview incredible people. That's true. That's true. Yeah, at our stage now, we are getting senior candidates that we never would have thought possible. Yeah, and like having the opportunity to test my ideas with someone that knows so much more than I do about demand generation or product marketing, it's just one of the things I'm really grateful for. If you think about your team, who do you think is the worst interviewer? Honestly, it probably is me. I've gotten a lot better, but I think early days, you and I had some similarities in kind of... uh, Loose we were with interviewing. We would find people that looked good, do some back back channeling, 
uh, have dinner with them. And that worked pretty well for us. But when I think about this new process, I've had to learn so much to follow it and grown so much as a uh, hiring manager. It only takes one or two bad apples to really humble you. Totally. You, you make these hires you think are amazing. They fall flat on their face. And then you realize that you, your judgment is not impeccable. Yeah, and you're letting down a whole team when you do that. Right, yeah, it does reflect on you. So we've talked a lot about the responsibility of hiring managers throughout this process, but we also have an awesome recruiting team who makes a lot of this possible. Uh, what, is, what is recruiting's role in hiring? So recruiting is there to keep the, the process on track. Make sure we don't lose any candidates. Make sure candidates are treated really well. Recruiters are amazing at building a relationship with the candidate. Absolutely. And then relaying a lot of the information back to the hiring manager. So they, you know, they, they build that trust and then they get the key decision points that the candidate is using. And we have these five separate stages, all of which require either phone time or in-person time and scheduling and rescheduling as people have busy lives. We absolutely couldn't do this without them. Right, right. Uh, they're incredible. And uh, they'll also do things like they'll manage external recruiters. You know, for some roles, external recruiters make sense. We call them evergreen roles, things like customer success, um, sales reps, SDRs. And um, so we work with external recruiters for that, and they'll manage that relationship. And when we think about recruiting as a pipeline um, and having different channels, referrals is by far our most, uh, our highest conversion channel and highest quality lead scores. But that doesn't mean we wouldn't have less efficient channels running at the same time. Right? We need to hire quite a few people, and there's no reason to be pigeonholed into just one channel. Right. The thing to remember is if we get amazing at this process, that is such a competitive advantage. The biggest one. The book we've been talking about and referencing is a book called The Manager's Handbook we're writing here at Clearbit, showing off all the different ways we train our managers internally. For more information, go check it out at clearbit.com or click on that link in the show notes. Each month, we'll be releasing a new chapter uh, online as a podcast, and so tune in for the next one. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is being recorded at StudioPod SF. For more information, go to studiopodsf.com. Thank you so much for listening.